Warning, this episode contains discussion of mental health, self-harm, suicide, and suicidal ideation. If you or a loved one are in crisis, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255, or the Crisis Text Line at 741-741. Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. Uh, Welcome to the show. This will be an emotional show, and I should probably start off with a potential trigger warning, which I'm sure, Ann Moss, you you do this frequently. I don't do it as much on my end, but uh, we are going to talk about a very important topic today. And um, honestly, I can tell you it's one that I have not spent a whole show on, and I've been doing the podcast for over a year now. I finished up your book and I can tell you, uh, it's an amazing book. And we're going to talk quite a bit about uh, some of the notes I took uh, from the book. Uh, But first, Ann Moss, thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, you are in which state again? Richmond, Virginia. That's what I thought. Virginia, I get, you know, you do the same thing probably. I have so many people I meet and sometimes I get people confused. For some reason, I had you flip-flopped with another state with another person that's doing similar work that you're doing. And you probably know who she is. <laughs> who? Um, Let me know. Leslie. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, she's awesome. She's in Illinois. Indiana. India. Yeah. Well, there you go. It, start, it starts with <laughs> I. Yeah. Indiana. So you just validated my point yes, that we all did. do this. Yes, you did. Anyway, welcome, welcome to the show. And, uh, first off, you know, um, my condolences, uh, your your um your loss is extremely unfortunate yet from all this you have come out of it uh amazingly uh, resilient and undeterred i guess is a good way to term it um why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and obviously about charles and um we'll go from there so um I started out my professional career um, in advertising and marketing. So I was, I came out of journalism school at UNC and my dream was to work in an ad agency, making up and writing commercials, which is what I did for many decades. Then I segued into digital marketing. And in 2015, um, Charles died by suicide. As and I ended up going into suicide prevention after that. So, mm-hmm. Charles, when he was in elementary school, it was always a struggle after kindergarten because he kind of didn't buy into the whole school thing because, you know, there were it's just everybody sitting in rows and it really Mm -hmm. hasn't changed much since the industrial age. Right. And I think he felt like a square peg and a round hole and he didn't feel that sense of belonging, uh, Mm -hmm. right from the get go in kindergarten he did. But after that, it was, it was just difficult. And as he got older, it just got more difficult. And I think he started struggling with thoughts of suicide around, and let me cut off all things that are going to ding. I'm sorry about that. Um, That's okay. I did that earlier. Yeah, he started to struggle with thoughts of suicide. I didn't know it. Um, I had no idea that my son suffered at all because, you know, he was a funny guy. Did he tell anybody about this? And he may have told some other people who also struggle with depression, but I'm not real sure to what extent mm-hmm. he he had those conversations. But he did. And what grade was this? What grade was this that he started having these thoughts? I think uh, fifth, sixth grade. Oh, fifth. Wow. Okay. So pretty young. Yeah. And kids will often talk about like I'll have kids that are 15 years old and they'll reach out to me and say. I was eight years old the first time I got these thoughts. Hmm. 
So they, wow. they don't know what suicide is at that age, but they know that they get feelings of wanting to die. Sure, yeah. And, you know, I never thought to ask my son that, but he did talk about death a lot. Um, he talked about people who died young, and I thought he had just a morbid fascination. I mean, Charles was a creative genius, so he had all the personality quirks that went along with that. Mm -hmm. Sure. So, you know, if I dug into everything, you know, I'd, I'd still be talking to, you know, it would have taken hours and hours every single day because he always said things that were just, I, I just couldn't believe. <laughs> Did but, he have any substance use disorders at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, um, okay. Uh, very, so what happened in 2010 Around that time, it was right after he was on homecoming court, his drug use started to escalate a whole lot after that. What what kind of drugs? I uh, started off with the typical stuff of alcohol, marijuana, marijuana you know, your gateway okay. kind of drugs. Yep. Although marijuana is not necessarily a gateway drug anymore. It leads to mm. high THC concentrates, which you know. Um, right. He ended up becoming addicted to heroin. Ah, okay. And it was because to a kid who felt like crap all the time, and the first time you use heroin, I'm not going to get addicted, but this can't be wrong. It makes me feel great. Absolutely, yeah. And, of course, I think he was predisposed to addiction and then, of course, became dependent and then addicted uh, to it. And I, I think he lived in our house about 10 months. I didn't know it. Because he snorted it, I didn't know you could. Oh, I didn't know you could snort heroin. Right. So when people would say, "Are you know, are there burn spoons or tinfoil?" Well, I didn't have any of that in my house. So I thought, oh, "We're we're good." <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would too. Yeah, sure. And I feel kind of stupid that I didn't recognize, but he did his drugs late at night. So I wasn't seeing the effect of heroin on my son because we were asleep. And mm -hmm. then he slept real late. Uh, he had a sleep disorder anyway, which mm -hmm. helped kind of cover things up. But he did finally, the police came to my door and showed me pictures of my son pawning uh, my silverware that had been given to me by my grandmother. And that was my first, yeah. first yep. oh my gosh, maybe there's something more to this and he ended up confessing going to rehab going to um uh detox and rehab then recovery house and then he uh relapsed at the recovery house they took him back to detox and then he walked out with a friend and for two weeks we didn't know where he was we got one phone call and a couple of texts and uh, then the police met us in the parking lot and we were out to dinner one night they called us and the parking lot was the closest so they said they would meet us there and they delivered the news their son had died I thought for sure it was overdose yeah and then my husband said how did he die and it, he didn't die by overdose. It was far more intentional than that. And I won't name the method. Yeah, I understand. And I'll be honest with you. When, when I read that in your book, I stopped and shut the book and didn't go any further for a while because it brought back the day that our son died of heroin poisoning with fentanyl. And my middle son asked the same thing. How did he die? I mean, he it's in my book. How, how did he die, Dad? And I said, drugs. That was my answer. So when, when you were thinking that Charles died from drugs, I think that would be what any parent would have thought based on the decisions he was making. Um, and so then when you found out that he had taken his own life, obviously it doesn't lessen any of the pain. It just probably muddies the water more, makes it more confusing. 
Yeah. But I, I, the way you the way you explain the story in the book, I think every parent reading that that's either been through it, which hopefully you know there's a lot less of us out there than there are the others, but um, I think every parent can either go, "Wow, yeah, I remember that day," or, "Geez, I I don't know what I would do if this happened to me." And with fentanyl now, boy, I mean, in your area, um, mm-hmm. I have to think, you know, all around the country, it, it's just, I'm not sure I've ever seen anything explode quicker than what's happening with fentanyl overdoses around the country. I mean, it's just going through the roof. Scary. And it's very it is scary. scary. And it, it's a, it's a snapshot. It's a picture of the mental health issues that we have in this country. And, you know, if, if a lot of kids wouldn't have died one way they would have probably passed away another. I always kept telling Seth, you know, the road you're on, it's either going to be a drunk driving crash. It's going to be a murder. It's going to be, you know, something you're, something's going to happen bad. And my quote that I said to him when he was 16, I said, you're going to be in jail or dead. And unfortunately he was, you know, incarcerated numerous times. And then he was in prison right before he died. But I, I go back and I look at back, back at, my situation and then all the situations I'm meeting, you know, your situation and all the ones on the Facebook groups I'm in. And it, it seems to me just the underlying issues of mental health, mental health epidemic we have in this country and the inability for people to find constructive escapes from whatever life pressures are thrown at them. Adolescents have a tremendous amount. Adolescents are in that brain development stage. Yeah. So their amygdala, which is the trigger of really big emotions, is kind of the center of their life at that point. And so Mm -hmm. those emotions just take up more real estate in their heads. And Mm -hmm. everything is bigger and more punctuated. And it actually actually is in their brain. So the, Mm -hmm. you know, putting, figuring out how to cope with them is that much more difficult. And with all the isolation we've been going through, they're not having the opportunity to develop those coping strategies. And one thing I learned, and I don't know if you feel like this on reflection, is telling them what's going to happen in the future just is not effective with teenagers because they're right here and now. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And, And saying things like, you know, what do you want for your life? because I want to support that Mm -hmm. and just kind of planting that seed of I'm not driving this train you are but what do you want for yourself and having them maybe think on that but it is they're afraid or our teenage population and and everybody actually is really afraid to feel their feelings but I can attest that they that your feelings, if you let them in and you sit with them, and then after that you distract yourself or figure out what you're going to do from there, pushing those feelings away is not an effective strategy. And they'll come back at you like a boomerang on steroids. So what people are doing is that they're numbing them. And of course, what is that the next day? Does that make the problem go away? No, right. it gets bigger, and then you're adding another problem on top. But I mean, people, we see that as adults, yeah, right. But they're going for that right. immediate gratification, and with right. our current society of Google and everything happening so fast, you know, it, it's not always an instant solution, and it's. It's really learning to sit with our emotions, learning to kind of take that deep breath. And our kids just don't know how to do that. And I think we need to teach it in the schools. And I think oh, we, absolutely. we need to model what, it. <laughs> yep. You know, where do you think or where do you stand on this victim mindset that seems to be permeating uh, especially with adolescents, um, you know, is it they're, they're owed something from society or, or they're, they're, they're not getting a fair shake or a fair deal. And it seems like to me that this generation of kids has a self-inflicted spotlight on them, that they are somehow the worst off generation because they don't have a lot of stuff. Now, ironically they do. I mean, I, I, 
when I was younger, the remote control for my dad's TV was me. You know, yeah. it's like my brothers would get up and turn the channel. I mean, we didn't have cartoons were 30 minutes on Sunday or Saturday morning. It's like kids don't understand as much as they feel deprived. Maybe they're deprived of love and attention, but they're certainly not deprived of things and stuff. So I just think there's a massive, you know, I, I talk about this a lot on, on my presentations is, you know, we're the most abundant country, if not arguably ever in the history of the world. We're the most connected by far ever in the history of the world. Yet as a society, I think we're the most disconnected in the history of the world. Oh, yeah. So there's something going on there. And I think I don't know what the right answer is. I'm out there talking to people like you every day trying to figure out. How can we get all this together? How can we bring the Ann Mosses of the world and the Jeff Johnsons of the world together with parents to have these conversations without pointing fingers? And, and worse yet is stigma. I was going to get into that in a few minutes, but um, I, I, I'm, I don't know how you have these conversations without stigmatizing you know, cer certain groups. It's very difficult. I'm running into that right now on my side of the fence, you know, on the, on the, uh, overdose world, um, you know, having conversations without stigmatizing, but I, you spent a lot of time in the book with myths and stigmas. And so maybe that would be a good segue to, you can talk a little bit about how society, social media pressures are on kids, and then maybe go into a little bit about your thoughts on stigmas and how we can start having these conversations without feeling like we're stepping, like we have to walk on eggshells every time we talk about these things. Well, I, I'm going to start with the victim mindset that you brought up. Yeah. So yeah. that's not really a healthy place to start. But I think we do need to have an understanding about this generation. And that is that there is so much coming at them. And then, say, in school, we, we just pile on the work like they're small adults. Because mm -hmm. we're on this treadmill of that's how you have to get success. And they're not mm -hmm. finding any room to breathe. And the work that they're doing, for the most part, isn't critical thinking work, but memorization work. So it's not like it's busy work. It's a bunch of worksheets. And Charles yeah. recognized that. And I couldn't argue with him. And my son, and I need to ask him permission and post the clip. He did a um, a video short, and in that short, he's got, like, a person, and it looks like all this stuff is coming in his head. It's like the perfect illustration of this generation. Yeah. And anybody older looks at that clip, they don't really get it unless you explain mm -hmm. it to them. The kids immediately mm -hmm. go, yes, I feel that way. And we have to recognize that, we didn't grow up like that. You know, right. we didn't have these. I mean, we had pressure on us, but nothing like today. I mean, five mm -hmm. hours of homework and stuff like that. It's crazy. Well, they're seeing kids on TikTok worth $20 million when they're 15 years old. And right. they're like, I, and, and you know, when I was younger, I knew that, you know, my dad worked 40 years at a, at a company. It's like, I, I knew that you put your time in, you worked hard and good things had happened. Now kids don't have any patience. It's, Everything has to be, if they're not a millionaire by 20, they think they're a failure because everyone else around them is driving, at least on, on what they're seeing on social media. And I, you know, there's something about trying to get our kids and it's very difficult to do, but I, I'm fortunate. I have two kids that my other two boys, um, that, that don't fall into this trap and neither one of them are on Facebook. Neither one of them are doing much on social media. Uh, they, they saw that some of the issues at a young age, but it's like, how do you get your kids to not be so polarized with how other people are doing this imposter syndrome or even gaslighting? And it's like, and then not feeling like a victim. It's like, it's tough. I mean, cause everybody's heavily connected on social media, but I don't know. I just, I, I, I think, think it's causing more problems than Oh, good. definitely. I think where we can push connection is in schools and have connection and belonging and have more exercises that get the kids to know each other, allow them to express themselves and inspire critical thinking skills. What would be an example? Can you think of like an example you would give on what you've worked with in schools? Um, so um, several of the teachers that I interviewed, one 
uh, just kind of starts off on Mondays and she's a chemistry teacher. And she said on that's mental health Mondays and they come in and they I love that. rate how they feel from one to five. And this is in chemistry class. This is in chemistry class. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And when I did this exercise with the YMCA youth leaders, one of them said to me, it's not so much how we rated ourselves, but the fact that you cared enough to ask. Yeah. And they're feeling the social media world makes them feel small and unimportant, like a grain of sand on a beach because you see the vastness of the world. Whereas when we were younger, it was just our neighborhood. So that was our environment. And we couldn't get as easily overwhelmed by everything. But when you see some go viral and it's 8 million, you just like, well, I am so insignificant. You know, it just, there are constant reminders, I think, that make people feel insignificant. And I, I think that wears on teenagers over time because they want to be seen and feel heard. So we need to give them more opportunities to do that. And Mm -hmm. then another teacher had them do a social justice movie. Um, She's a Spanish teacher and she says, they got to learn Spanish. We might as well combine that with um, a way to allow kids to express themselves, but they have to do it in Spanish. And they told Mm -hmm. all sorts of stories. One uh, young man told about, the fact that he was bullied because he was transgender and uh, the bully at the end ends up confessing that he struggled with thoughts of suicide. But giving the kids an opportunity to share their voice and guess what, Jeff? They were more inspired to learn Spanish. They were in Spanish 3 and if you want to get your message across, you're really going to dig into that vocabulary and figure out how to do it. Give them something they love. They will apply the lesson to be able to make that expression. And that's it's, what we're missing. It's the old um, story of changing changing behavior through fear or inspiration. Right. And, and, you know, you can sit there as a teacher and slap the desk with your ruler and you can standardize test them to death and you can compare them to their t- peers with grading schedules and all this, or you can inspire them to think big and, and talk about your own vulnerability. I think that, that to me has probably been the one thing as a, as a male, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I don't know how to say this, but I'll say it. Um, well, it's my podcast. I guess I can say what I want, but I'm on a lot of Facebook groups that are mostly, you know, mostly women that have lost their children. And, and, you know, I'm not, it's a constructive echo chamber. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's lots of good that comes out of it, but I don't see a lot of men in, in this field where they're talking about losing a, a child to either, you know, suicide or overdose or whatever. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but it, to me, I just, it's an ob- observation that I think for me being vulnerable as a male, you know, in a male that's, you know, done fairly well professionally and and from the outside had everything going for me with my career, my family and everything for me to acknowledge that there were cracks in the foundation and that I was a compulsive gambler. I was an alcoholic. My wife and I, you know, had, had issues. Uh, I think that little crack in the door, like your book does and like what you do allows people to say, you know what, maybe it's okay for me to talk about my problems too. You know? And I think as a teacher, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if the school systems encourage this or not. You would know more than me, Ann Moss. But, you know, if I'm a teacher in front of 50 people, is it okay for me to say, hey, you know, I used to be an alcoholic or, hey, I thought about suicide when I was 15? Or do schools say, no, nope, you can't because that that gets them. That, then, they, then if you bring it up, then they think about it, you know. And again, it's, it's, like this, it's like this reverse psychology thing is that, you know, it's one thing I've always struggled with alcoholics who go on social media and post how many days they're sober. I'm like, well, if you talk about it all the time, if you talk about alcohol all the time, maybe you'll maybe you'll end up falling off the wagon. Does does suicide work that way? I mean, do you see do you see a relationship where 
or is that a myth or something that is not real? So I'm going to touch on two things. Um, you notice I, t- I asked like three questions in yeah, one sentence. Maybe, I got so. it. There, there's <laughs> definitely, whoa, I can't even keep up something over here typing some notes. Um, I need everyone to know that talking about suicide doesn't give them the idea. However, okay. we don't want to go into a lot of graphic detail about method right. or, uh, you know, um, sp- real specifics dealing with killing oneself. We want to talk. Why why is that? You think, why is that? You think they, uh, well, recently, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail Two New York times reporters have been talking about something and they haven't been as responsible. And as a result, kids are looking this stuff up and more copycat syndrome. Yeah. It's it's sort of a contagion. They're struggling. It seems like an easy out. And some of them are just looking this stuff up, but some are following through. And they don't understand yet that no emotion is permanent and that being a teenager is, is hard. And I don't know what being a teenager today is like, but I know how it felt when I was 15. And it wasn't my favorite time of life. No. And so I'm going to touch on some about the vulnerability. So I was in a um, virtual event yesterday presenting on uh, suicide prevention. And a parent said, I'm always asking my son, trying to talk and get him to talk. And I ask him questions and he shuts me down and just says yes or no. And I said, "Um, Gerald, have you ever opened up and been vulnerable to your son? And he said, well, no. And I said, well, how would you expect Hmm. him to be vulnerable with you? Mm -hmm. And I mean, as far as teacher vulnerability, I think that, you know, uh, Tammy Oslins, who is a teacher in middle school, does a really good job. You know, you can't just say, I did this, but talking about she talks about living with a mental illness and she may not go into nauseating detail but she can talk about how she felt before she actually got into recovery and found a more stable life you know Mm -hmm. i felt alone i felt like nobody was was like me and i think that's kind of where we need to focus so when we talk about suicide, we want to tell them what the warning signs is, but we want to tell them how to support a friend. We want to tell them if somebody shares that with you, you can't keep that secret, but you can be discreet. So I have a question for you. This just popped into my head. Um, a friend of mine, of my, uh, uh, my son, Ian, is in college right now in South Dakota. One of his friends, his mom committed suicide dad by suicide sorry pardon (laughs) dad by suicide we don't want to use the phrase committed and and i actually have that down here i was going to ask you about what you think about that and i have committed suicide circled so i just i just uh did something i wasn't going to do today but i did but that's how you learn right um exactly so this 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 kid uh came to me a couple years ago because he saw what i was doing with all my projects you know and this was before my, my wife died. And he said, you know, Jeff, I have to talk to you about something. I think he called me one night and he goes, you know, my, my mom took her own life when I was a child, like six months old. And his sister took her own life as well when, when she got older. And he's like, Jeff, um, and I'm, you know, right now, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not an expert in suicide. I'm not even an expert in overdose (laughs) or poisoning in this case. But so he presents to me some of the things going through his mind. And, you know, this is like a Tuesday night at 11 o'clock at night. And I, I, I know this kid fairly well. Now I know him substantially better. But for him to be able to call me, one of my son's friends, and present this narrative that he's struggling I thought to myself, okay, right there, the fact that I was vulnerable first, I'm kind of validating your point, you know, about asking the parent, you know, what have you told your parent what you're going through? Is this child now opened up to me? And and so 
I've become a very good resource. And you know what I told him? And I, I, I have no idea this is correct or not. You tell me if I'm way off base. Cause I, I have no idea if I made this worse or better, but I said, you know, I said, Eric, I said, you may want to become an advocate for suicide awareness and prevention. And again, he's young and I don't know if he could handle that, but I said, do you feel better talking to me about this? And he said, I feel a lot better. And I said, well, maybe, maybe when you're ready, you can tell your story to other people like I'm doing about my wife and my son who died and my problems I had. Maybe that will help you. It's better than repressing it, you know, because repressing it, I, I equate a spring. If you hold down a spring, the minute you let go, it just springs up higher than what it was before you held it down. And so I don't know if I helped him at all by putting that thought in his head, but believe it or not, he has now talked with all of his friends about this right in front of us. And I really feel like something clicked there that the fact, and it started with, you know, and I'm not trying to be a narcissist here, but it started with me crying in front of these kids and telling my story, but in a, in a constructive way, not a victim. You know, I, I tend to look at things and I posed a question and I really like this way you frame things is do things happen to you or do things happen for you? And in reading your book, you know, the death of your son I, I get the impression that you looked at this as an opportunity for you to do something very great with your life and to honor Charles the same time. So that's my little spiel about being vulnerable. And I, I, I actually am saying that story just to validate what you said is I, I do think there's more upside in being vulnerable than there is downside. Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, there is fear and there is risk, but I think it, uh, our going forward with it is so it's just worth it. And it can be somebody else's survival guide in the future. Mm -hmm. You've got to get to the place of emotional stability where you're ready to do that. And I actually have a post on my blog. When are you ready to tell your story? If you're still bitter and angry, you're not ready yet. Those are, those are parts of the process that you need to work through. And we all work through them. And there's nothing wrong with you because you have the that part of the process. It's a natural part of it. So wait, it, what year did Charles pass away? Uh, 2015, June 5th. And how soon did you start advocacy? I mean, I, I waited a year. I couldn't handle it. But how soon did you start advocacy? Real soon. And it's really recommended to wait like two years. <laughs> Yeah, um, I know you started soon. I, I I read that in your book. Yeah, I did, and I started kind of with the educational piece right away. And but with suicide, I needed to have more training to understand, you know, what safe messaging meant. Um, I needed to know, you know, what kind of could trigger somebody or what could help them. There was some that was innate that I went ahead and did, but specific mm-hmm. topic of suicide and, you know, saying do this when you sit down with somebody really didn't come until a couple of years later when I had enough training on that. Hmm. Uh, and by the way, the name of my book is Diary of Broken Mind. So we've been talking about it here, but, um, no, uh, you know, I need to say what the title is. Well, Emotionally Naked, too. You have two books, right? I do. I have Diary of a Broken Mind, which is the memoir, and then Emotionally Naked, A Teacher's Guide to Preventing Suicide and Recognizing Students at Risk. And that's the one I I finished. Okay. Um, That is the one that kind of gives you practical tips and, you know, really talks about the underlying issues and, you know, making it as easy as possible for teachers to read it. So it doesn't sound all researchy, but also we go back backing to, it with research. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <clears throat> no, go ahead. I was going to say, can we go back to this commit word? Because I, I see people struggle with that. And, and naively, I just used it after I put a note here, not to say commit suicide today to you. And <laughs> I certainly did it. And I'll probably do it later today when I'm talking to somebody else. Um, I, I guess from a from a lens that you view from is obviously different from you know, a lens from someone who hasn't had a, a child uh, die from suicide. What what's the issue with using that word commit? 
I'm, I'm just curious on what, what the issue is with that. So I'm, I'm going to say that and then I'm going to tell you where it came from. Yeah, absolutely. So when we say commit suicide, it sounds like a crime. And we okay. are now recognizing suicide as a public health issue. Okay. And But where does it come from? Why do we use that phrase? Well, it comes from, you know, 1300s England, when it was actually a crime to attempt yeah. suicide or to kill yourself. Mm. So if somebody did die by suicide, the family was basically punished. They were not allowed to um, bury their loved one in a cemetery or have a service. Society shunned them. <clears throat> they were shamed for their loved one having died by suicide. And then the worldly possessions of that loved one were donated to the crown of England. So mm. they lost inheritance as well. And that has persisted for hundreds of years. So it's really become embedded as a phrase in our lexicon. And that's why mm -hmm. it's so hard to get rid of now. So if you find or catch yourself saying the commit word, you know, out loud say, oh, I've been trying to change that. I'm supposed to say died yeah. by suicide, took his own yep. life. Then yep. you are taking that opportunity to educate other people. And it's yep. going to take you some time to push that out of your vocabulary. It took my husband five years. And I kept reminding him over and over. And I, I don't want to word chain people because... A lot of times people are using the phrase, they're good people. And well, yeah, you're, you're exactly, you're exactly right. Commit suicide is like committing a crime because commits the same word in both scenarios. So I think for me, just that sentence you said, commit will make me remember as I go forward when we're presenting on the tour and all that stuff for, for me not to say that. Um, and stop myself and, and correct myself because that's how you change stigmas and narratives as you start with yourself. Exactly. And dying by suicide is an act of despair. And yeah. it's not, a lot of people think it's selfish or a choice when it's really a behavior people are driven to in a moment of emotional devastation and despair. They can often, you know, have a physical health component as well. Yeah. It's not a choice. <laughs> you know, co-occurring disorders, I guess, whatever you want to call them, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia, substance use disorder, depression, anxiety, you know, that all goes hand in hand. I don't think anyone takes their own life for maybe I'm completely wrong in this on for one particular reason. Oh you know, no, there's maybe, always you know, may, may, maybe somebody was sexually molested at, at seven and, and that one incident, you know, caused all these other problems and they can't, they can't get grasp of what happened. They're taking a lot of guilt and maybe, maybe that's different than all the other things. Yeah. I, I don't sex, sex it, abuse is such a, mm -mm. Go it's, ahead. it's always a constellation of multiple risk factors and, okay. and triggers. Nobody dies by suicide for one reason alone, ever. Uh, there, and, and, you know, you'll read headlines that say child kills herself because she was bullied. Well, yeah, think of right. the number of people who are right. sexually abused or bullied is, is yep. millions and not all of them die by suicide. They have to have right. other underlying vulnerabilities, mental illness, a history of suicide in their family, which, by the way, raises the risk of suicide of other family members, substance use disorder, uh, you know, psychosexual world, which is their environment, what's happening there. And then there are what we call precipitating events. And those are events that drive people you know, it's that kind of last straw. All this stuff is happening. What are those precipitating events or last straw events that push people towards suicide? And mm. there are two of those. And one uh, is transitions and many transitions. And the other is relationship disruptions. Transitions could be in the military. It's deployment. It could be going from high school 
to college, college to real life. Divorce. Uh, yeah. And that's actually relationship disruption. But it's also, oh, okay. you know, it is also a transition as well. So, okay. But we also need to focus on those mini transitions, like uh, leaving for spring break or just, you know, being at work uh, in virtual environment and going back to in person. A lot of times that makes people really anxious. And if you're already vulnerable to suicide, it can exacerbate and push them towards that behavior. The uh, relationship disruption is the divorces, parental divorce, uh, fight with a friend. Grief and mm -hmm. loss is another uh, one. And those precipitating events often push people that are already vulnerable, that have this constellation of issues towards suicide. And we need to prepare people for that. You know, right. what are you going to do when you go back to school? What are you going to do when you are transitioned back into society after the military? We have to support people at those vulnerable times. And if we do that and we stick with it, then, you know, it helps. It helps bring those numbers down. Let me pivot from adolescents and kids to another alarming trend that I saw. And, you know, you're right in the thick of this. So I'm, I'm sure you could validate these numbers. But I saw something that, and I don't know if I'll say this correctly, Ann Moss, but the highest year over year increase in suicide uh, percentages. So not numbers, like the highest, like m most numbers of suicide. This would be year over year increase was white middle-aged men. And that's me. And I certainly can understand. And I've had probably in the last year, maybe not known personally, but I know of somebody that knew somebody, but at least five white middle-aged men that have taken their own lives. So it's like we've spent 40 minutes talking about kids and adolescents, but then there's all these other statistics and look at, look at, um, the L LBGTQ community, LGBTQ committee, um, community. community. Yeah. Sorry. My, my son came out a year ago as being gay. Uh, he's, he's 18 now. And one of the greatest moments of my life is when he told me he was gay. I just embraced the opportunity for me to learn about this and, and to love him as a father should. And yet the statistics with, you know, gay teens is five times higher suicide rates. So there's so many moving parts in the, what you are doing, uh, that how do we start making headway with this stuff above and beyond just having discourse? I, I think conversations are great and statistics help, but everywhere I look, it seems like the rates and the numbers aren't, aren't getting, you know, aren't getting better. So I guess, you know, what are your, some of your suggestions that we can do as a society and maybe as parents to make some of these, you know, statistics start going in the, in a better direction? So I think the first um, thing is, is meet people where they are. And if that's in despair and darkness, that's where we need to go. And what, uh, what do you mean say meet people where they are? Give me a really good example. So my, I go back to my son, Seth, you know, he died of overdose, but it certainly could have been taking his own life as well. Uh, and even my wife who passed away from alcoholism in a way, in a way she did take her own life after our son died. You know, it was, it was a grief and, and trauma issue that she had, you know, getting over that, moving on from the death of a child, obviously is something you cannot, you know, tell somebody how, how to grieve, but you know, look, looking at these situations, I look at my son, what he was going through. And I think, I think of all the different opportunities I had to intervene. Did I miss some, you know, I don't play the guilt game very often, but I guess as a parent, you know, I notice in your book, you talk about normal signs of kids and then you have the warning signs. How do you know the difference? I mean, it seems to me is so much gray area there. There is, but it's the way it makes you feel. So if I said, oh, I can't do this anymore, you're not going to be concerned about me because that is said in a way that is almost 
funny and, and it's lighthearted. But if I said, mm. I can't do this anymore and you know I'm going, I'm not going through a divorce, but let's say you know I'm going through a divorce and you feel my despair, whether it's a text or whatever, and it makes you uncomfortable, you have to act on that. So a lot of people are fearful and they'll make all these, you know, uh, exceptions in their brain. Well, she's, she's going to be fine instead of reaching out. And what we need to do is connect more because the greatest gift you can give another human being is the allowing them to feel heard and allowing them to feel they've been heard. And that is shutting up and listening more. And what we want to do is say, you have so much to live for, wrong thing yeah. to say. Um, right. Or tell some story where we overcame. That is not meeting people where they are. Right now they are hurting and we just need to be empathetic, ask more questions and say, how long have you felt that way? That must be really hard. Active listening. We don't want to listen, yeah. we want to fix. We can't fix this. We're not qualified. But what we can and do I, is listen. Right. And I certainly am not in the advice business. That's not that's not my objective. Oh, no. It's to share my it's I share my that. story through my experiences, the my the lens of my experiences. But going back to, you know, what happened in both situations with my son and my wife, the, the most helpless part of the whole thing was literally seeing the outcome in advance and not having a damn way to stop it. I mean, with, especially when there's co-occurring issues where you have someone who's depressed and they're drinking, you know, and, and they're, you know, doing other things that aren't, you know, you know, anxiety or whatever you want, other issues involved. And as a parent, there is no more helpless feeling than watching that car go over the cliff, you know, one foot at a time for four or five years and there's, you can't, you can't stop it. No. And it's like, and, and that, that's, that's, that's what gets me waking up at three in the morning and gets me to work on my projects and gets, is more of my inability to have, to have intervened. And for all the parents out there that have a child that has come to you and talked about these things, uh, or is using heroin or, you know, whatever, I'm not sure what I can say. <laughs> to help you. I, I struggle with that. I mean, people think I'm an expert just because I've lost two people, but I'm, I'm not, I, I I'm an experienced expert, I guess I'm not a clinician, but I really struggle with trying to help people. I get emails every day as you do every day. I got one last night on Facebook, a DM direct message from one of my friends, friends that was, I would consider having delusional paranoid type thoughts. He thought he was being chased. thought he was going to get murdered kids 17, you know, and it's 11 o'clock at night. I, I don't know how to respond. I'm not an expert in these things. So what guidance would you give parents just on the surface level? You know, what are, what are some of the main things you can do? Maybe, I mean, understand listening, but uh, I, can you go any deeper? The main thing, and I tell parents this, and a lot of them don't want to do this step. Um, right. But I went to Families Anonymous. So I found a group of people who are struggling with the same problem. And you know what I expected. I thought I was going to walk in and there'd be sort of all these edgy people there. Yeah. And yeah, you know what yeah. I saw? I saw good parents like myself. And once I met people in the group, I'm like, wow, this happens to really good parents too. And I think we have to meet them where they are. We can't stop this. We have no control. All we have control is how we react to it. And I really wish I had told my son, as much as I want you to get well, I love you even if you don't. I think hmm. that oftentimes the way we kind of shame them or we talk about, well, you're, you're going to die, you know, this is going, not going in a good place. We're shaming them. We're actually driving them to use more because that is mm. their strategy for coping. And when there's an emotional upheaval, guess what they do? They, they go to what they know. So mm. if we change our behavior, so it's kind of like everybody in their family has a role. 
And if you're driving a Jeep and you're driving in the same ruts every day, guess what? Nothing is going to change and you're still going to drive in those ruts and they're going to get deeper and deeper and deeper. You have to change your own behavior. You have to make new and different. You, you've got to show that you're seeking help because when you go get support and you can say to your loved ones, I feel very helpless. I don't like the way I'm reacting to you at times. And I feel like it drives you to use more. And I'm not supporting you in a way that helps you have the life that you want to live. And I'm trying to define that. And for that reason, I need to find help for myself. You're modeling. Yeah. I mean, other parents are like, yeah. they won't go get help. And I'm like, well, have you gone? Oh, well, no, I don't have the problem. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. We yeah, all have to do. go into recovery and understand what our role is. Right. And, and no, we're not. We didn't cause it. We can't cure it. But that doesn't mean we're completely powerless. We can control no, how we're... we react to it. We're complicit. There's no question because I go back when, when Seth was really struggling that my wife and I would still sit up at night and we drink wine, you know, and I was a functional alcoholic. So I drank six, seven days a week. And in hindsight, I look back at these experiences thinking, you know, instead of telling Seth not to drink, which was actually the very last words I told him in my garage is said, Seth, you need to quit drinking. And that's the last thing I ever said to him before he died. It, I didn't quit myself. So what type of a role model am I if I'm sitting around drinking every week and trying to tell my son not to drink? So I, you're right. It all starts with us. If you want to, sh if you want to tell your kids to quit drinking, then maybe show your kids how to quit drinking. You know, um, there's something I thought about the other day and I don't know if you've ever had this question asked to you. Um, it's actually unanswerable, but I think there was 50,000. If I look at my numbers, right. Of, suicides that were in 2020. Does that sound right in, yeah. in America? 50,000. Okay. If you had an opportunity to ask all those 50,000, you know, two years later, two days later, five years later, whether they would have still taken their own lives, what percentage do you think people that would have an opportunity to have a second chance would actually say, no, I wish I wouldn't have. I, I think it's a ridiculously high number. Oh, I, I would think majority. Least, I'd say eighty percent. And I believe. Yeah, I. I, I, I believe my yeah. cousin Pat, who died by suicide in January twenty twenty, had I asked him thirty seconds or a minute later, he would have yeah. said, "No way, I would have killed myself. No way." I mean, I remember some stories back in high school. We had a, a kid that we knew that that shot himself with a shotgun. I'm pretty sure it was over a girl. And now that kid would have been 54 and probably married and three kids and, you know, thinking about retirement and that girl he was with that many years ago, he probably doesn't even remember her name. And it's like, I think that's, that's the bubble that we live in as humans is that we get so polarized with events that happen to us that, that we really can't look any further than the end of our pain. I mean, our pain doesn't have an ending site. It's like we live in, in this trauma bubble. And I asked my kids this, I, you know, just as a joke one time, again, I'm not a therapist and I may be doing something wrong, but one time my son was having an issue and I said, uh, do you remember second grade? And he said, yeah, a little bit. And I said, well, do you remember having a really bad day in second grade? And he, he said, no. And I said, well, that's kind of my point. When you're 40 and look back at, you know, ninth grade, and I asked you, do you remember ninth grade? Do you remember a really bad day? What, what, what more likely your answer going to be when you're 40? You're probably not going to remember. And that's kind of how life is as we evolve through life is that we tend to shed our skin a little bit. And if we can present that narrative to kids, and, and I know we don't want to say, well, it gets better. Cause I know in your book, you read all these myths and I was looking through them and I'm like, yeah, that's me. That's me. That's me. It's, you know, I, I perpetuate many of these myths, but I'm also on full-blown learning mode for my life right now, you know, and trying to learn from not mistakes, but just opportunities that I have to get better. And one of them is how I look at some of these things, how I frame some of these things. And I think presenting to kids that it does get better is really isn't a myth because it does get better. I mean, it, it has to, there's, there's nothing worse than taking your own life. Right. Right. Well, yeah, but I don't think we can tell kids it's going to get better. It goes back to meeting them where they are and recognizing 
that being a teenager is hard, empathizing mm -hmm. with that. And, you know, just adding the support part of it. And like you said earlier, being vulnerable yourself, mm -hmm. presenting them like I've got a little ebook called uh, nine ways to build resilience for your kids. I think it's like 19 pages. It's a free download. Hmm. I read this one and I've given it credit in, in the little ebook. I read this one little snippet from a social worker that talked about how you change a relationship with your children. Now it was kind of late. Charles was in a therapeutic boarding school, but I actually did these strategies with my son. And I said, hmm. I am no longer going to lecture you or give you advice. Um, and if you ask for it, I'm just going to ask you questions so that you come up with your own solution. They both laughed at me. And, and I said, if I lecture, you call me on it. Oh, mom, you'll not right. start. And I'm like, no, that is your job. You're supposed to catch me. And when you catch me, I'm going to stop. They loved calling me on that mom. That's unsolic <laughs> unsolicited advice. And I'm like, you're right. I gave them the power. And then I just asked them questions to come up with their own solution. And lots of times the solution was not great. But they weren't big price tags. You know, they were just uh -huh. like a test or I'm going to do this plan about this exam or something like that. And it didn't work. But they learned something from that. Letting, yeah. allowing them to make those little mistakes and quit helicoptering and calling it protecting them, when what you're doing is denying them the ability to develop the coping strategies themselves. I'm going to take a quick, because I think we got about seven, eight minutes to wrap this up, but my dog is barking. So Molly's <laughs> going to edit this part out, but I got to okay. let him outside real quick. All I'll right. Be right back. Sorry, he's an he's an older Labrador, and he he gives me a warning. But if I wait too long, then he just goes. So I have been there. Uh, we had to put our dog down uh, last year, but yeah, we were there when the dog let me know it had to be done then. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's. I'm going to wrap this up, and we'll do about six, seven more minutes. And I want to talk a little bit about the last part here, um, uh, a little bit more about what you're doing, and people, how people can reach you and stuff. So um, I'm going to pause a minute, and then Molly can edit this in. So, Ann Moss, I think as we segue towards the end of this podcast, and again, thank you so, so much for what you do and, and how you're honoring Charles and uh, the amazing way you've been resilient so quickly through this process that you're going through. I saw a statistic that 50% of Americans have been affected somehow by suicide, you know, half of the country. And that, that would be the collateral damage effect, you know, no different than when, um, when Seth died, you know, the hundreds of people that got kind of pulled into that vortex, even people that weren't involved in the family, but were friends and things like that. Yeah. To me, when you hear a number like that, I think it's imperative that we have these conversations, uh, throughout the country, you know, throughout the world. And I know you're doing a lot. You've written a few books. You're, you're massively active on social media. I met you on LinkedIn. So I think as we go into the end of the podcast, why don't you tell a bit about what you do, how people can reach you, you know, what, what's your overall objectives maybe in, in what you do. I know there's no end game because you and I are both in a, uh, we're in something that there is no end game. I mean, after you and I are gone, this will still be a very important topic that society will have to deal with. But how do people reach you? And I guess maybe what's next for you as well? What are your other projects you're working on? So um, my website is amosrogers.com. That's my speaking site. And then my blog is emotionallynaked.com. Um, and then you'll see my two books on there. And I got ebook library that are free downloads for people. I do a lot of, I still do a lot of speaking and keynote speaking uh, for different groups. Uh, and then I do a lot of professional development training for, for teachers to spot students at risk from elementary school to high school. 
and probably what I am best at, um, and actually working on an app uh, at Virginia, um, uh, let's see, VCU Institute of Drug and Alcohol Studies for those to prevent uh, kids from becoming addicted, uh, working with a couple mm. of neuroscientists. I'm really good at taking kind of research language or advice and saying, okay, here's the script. Here's an example. Because what we do is we say, go get help, or you need to say this to this child. And then I go into, okay, here's a sample script. So they have sound bites of what to say, like an elementary kid. How do you ask them? Are they thinking of suicide? You would talk about death and then you would say, are you thinking of making yourself dead? And, you hmm. know, how do you have that conversation? What is that death conversation? What pictures do you look for? So I show concrete examples because that's what we're kind of missing. We're given this pie in the sky information, but we're really mm. not digging down and giving people the real tools and the real sound bites of how to respond to somebody who is addicted. I have a campaign say that's called Say This, Not That. They're the most popular handouts at every event I go to. And I have one for addiction, one for suicide, one for grieving parents of like, don't say this, say this instead. And it just illustrates. And once people kind of see this really quick graphic of these three things you shouldn't say and these three things that you should say, it clicks into place. And given the, you know, how media is and how quick we want things, Mm-hmm. I think we need to give those quick studies to kind of draw people in and give them those sound bites that that help them manage these conversations. And I and I still advocate that listening is is a big part of it because we need to let other people know that they matter. And that's what my son Charles was really good at. So that is the core of everything I do. And that's really important to me. How many people a year try to take their own lives, but don't? I mean, I know it's 50,000 did, but what's the numbers of the, the, the attempt, but, but don't? You know, I, I don't. I think it's about at least five or six times that. Oh, wow. So yeah, I, it's, it's like, and then no that's just the ones that are reported. So it's and then probably, there's the multiple attempts, right? Yeah, but and, know that uh, somebody who attempts is at higher risk because what I thought is, oh man, we dodged a bullet there when he made that first attempt, not recognizing, yeah, that that is a big statistic for future suicide risk. It increases. I think as a parent, it would be like, oh wow, there's the warning shot. You know, that's the attention grab. Hey, we got to start paying attention. We can let our guard down a little bit because that was the attempt, you know. Right. I I certainly, your your book was extremely eye-opening to me. And I think um, I'm so fortunate that I was able to get you on on the podcast today. I've never spent a full show talking about this particular topic that, you know, it's easy for me to bring on guests that have focused more on the addiction and substance abuse angle because that's kind of where, you know, I... I do most of my work, but on the tour coming up in 90 days, I'm having a number of advocates such as yourself that I'll be meeting on the tour and and doing some presentations and so forth. And I want to bring awareness to, to this mental health initiative, this mental health epidemic uh, that we have, you know, try to help one another get through these tough times because I think we're kidding ourselves to think that, you know, things are just going to get magically better and, and it takes a lot of work. You know, I'm where I'm at you know, because of all the work I've put in that I could easily have joined my son and my wife, uh, quite easily. Uh, and the fact I haven't is a, is, is a testimonial to the work I put into it, you know, focusing on my not drinking, focus on my excluding all toxic relationships, you know, focus on reading on, on meeting people like you that have done heroic things in the face of adversity. 
So I've immersed myself into this, I don't know, this spiritual journey, I guess, is what I would say for lack of a better phrase. Um, and if I can do it, I, I'm by no means anybody with special talents. I'm just a dad from Iowa, as I like to say. If I can do it, then anyone out there can do it as well. I, I, I promise you that any parent that has not had this happen yet, but they feel like it will because they have a child that's going down these roads, making poor choices, reach out to Ann Moss, reach out to Jeff Johnston, reach out to, to, um, Steve Grant, reach out to these people that have been there, you know, and, um, we help one kid, you know, I, I use a story all the time and I'll wrap this up. I said every single kid that has become clean or sober or has decided that they weren't going to take their own lives had one day where that was the day they decided to make a change in their life. And so shouldn't we as a society, as as parents, try to get kids to just get one more day? That's kind of my little mantra now. It's like one more day, one more day, you know, and whatever it takes, I mean, whatever it takes, try to get one more day. And if somebody listening to this podcast, we offered one more day, then to me, it was worth it today, you know? So I'm going to quote my son that wrote one of his rap songs. If you can make it through the day, you can make it through the next. Perfect. What a great way to end our conversation. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Ann Moss. And I'm going to go get the first book you wrote. Uh, I'm assuming you. that's on Kindle as well. or It is. Um, and, and leave me a review on the first one. Um, I already did. I gave you a glaring five. I gave you a glaring five star. <laughs> I love you. Thank you for doing that. And I, and I do offer that back when, when you get my book, I'm not sure if you've got it yet, but, uh, I, I can't recall it. if I've, okay, I'll check with Molly. I'm pretty sure we sent them out, but I would appreciate the same if you can give me a. Absolutely. Uh, or maybe I, um, anyway, I'll check. I get hundreds uh, hundreds obviously, but I definitely, Oh, I know I do too. I, I, I definitely I've been trying to, I've been reading them on Kindle now. I can I can get through them quicker and more organized and trying to sit down and read a book is hard for me to do today with distractions. But hey, listen, thank you very much. You're awesome. I really appreciate what you're doing. And um, Charles and Seth and, you know, in my case, Prudence um, are, are very proud of what we are doing. And um, I often say that um, I feel pushed by them, but also pulled by them, that they're pulling me the same time they're pushing me and um but don't lose focus of ourselves we really got to make sure that you and i are in good places before we go out and save the world right because <laughs> if we're not if we're not in good places then nothing else really matters so true true thank you so much for having me jeff i really appreciate it it's been my pleasure and my honor so we'll talk soon okay thanks okay. Amos. all right bye-bye